When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, science correspondent and this week's host. Today I'm joined by Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent, and my colleague, our science correspondent, Tim Cross. In this episode, we'll be discussing seeing eye bacteria and the impact of coral reef bleaching. Miranda, let's turn first to you. This week you've done a a deep dive, as it were, for our international section on coral reef bleaching, and you got a chance to see it for yourself, didn't you? I did. I was lucky enough to travel out to Hawaii a little while ago and talk to some of the scientists working on uh, coral reefs there and looking into what's been happening to them as a result of uh, warming ocean temperatures and of also changing ocean chemistry. And so this leads to bleaching. What is bleaching exactly? So uh, corals are very interesting little creatures. The colours that people think of when they think about them are produced by single-celled algae that grow uh, symbiotically in corals as tissue. These use carbon dioxide respired um, by their host coral to make oxygen and carbohydrates through photosynthesis, uh, which in turn give corals most of the energy they need to form their skeletons. And essentially, when you get ocean warming, the algae and the the corals, the relationship between them breaks down. And they're not quite sure exactly why, but it seems that corals sort of expel them in some way, essentially leading to corals losing their colour, which makes them appear bleached. That's why they're called bleaching events. It kills them, doesn't it, if it goes on for too long? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It can absolutely decimate reefs because they they can no longer uh, live if they don't have the algae helping them provide their food. It's one of the things that was pointed out to me when I was at the Marine Institute in Hawaii was that actually often it's very difficult to work out exactly how destroyed a reef may have been by a bleaching event. You might get a couple of survivors here and there. And so there's a there's a bleaching event going on there now, is that right? Yes, there is. Um, there is a global bleaching event underway currently. It's the third uh, global event. The first was in 98, second in 2010. And the 98 event and the current one coincide with El Nino events. Uh, El Nino is the world's largest climactic phenomenon, and it sees the Pacific Ocean warm a vast amount. And again, as we know, that therefore affects the kind of symbiosis between corals and and their algae. And so why is the event that's going on now so, so grave? It's a tricky question to answer because marine biology that specifically focuses on corals is quite a young discipline. But background ocean warming may have a lot to do with it insofar as reefs attempted to recover from the bleaching events of 98 and 2010 haven't entirely managed to. But in the meantime, conditions have been getting hotter and hotter. I mean, this year's El Nino is the biggest since 98, isn't it? When predictions first came out, I think last October, America's National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration thought that it might be the strongest one ever. They now think that the 97-98 one was perhaps greater, but it's still really, really been quite impressively powerful. But we're not completely subject to the whimsy of, of climate, though. There are there are short-term and long-term plans to fix this, right? One of the 
points that was made to me by uh, various people I spoke to for this piece is that actually if we want to give corals a, a good chance at surviving future stresses that will be laid on upon them by climate change, as I mentioned, warming and changing ocean chemistry, in the short term, what needs to be tackled are local problems such as agricultural runoff, which causes algae blooms that essentially block out the light and algae in within the corals need that light to photosynthesize. Other problems like a lot of construction on coasts, you get sediment in the water, again, that changes the amount of light filtering down to corals. Addressing these issues and especially overfishing will help corals in the short term and actually potentially give them a better chance at making it in the long term. Are there any sort of further longer term plans, any sort of bigger scope things to do rather than just keep bad stuff from going in the water? Yeah, so this is really the the, the reason I hopped on several planes to get over to Hawaii because it's... Sure it is. Uh, uh, It's all well and good trying to create sort of more marine protected areas and other kind of marine reserves to give corals a break from, you know, pollution and fishing. But ultimately, uh, those aren't going to be able to sort of zone out changes within you know, the ocean itself. But a team at the Marine Institute in Hawaii has been looking into trying to selectively breed and condition coral. So you can get essentially the same type of coral growing in different parts of the ocean, for example, in the eastern and western Pacific. But actually, one type can withstand slightly higher temperatures. And so this team is looking into kind of reasons behind why some corals seem to be more hardy or potentially why the algae that live within them are more hardy to these certain types of stressor. And working that out, you know, can we create tougher types of coral that could withstand longer term problems? Right. Well, thanks for reporting from the tropics then. Miranda. Um, and <laughs> no, it's a no tough problem. job. <laughs> Someone has to do it. Moving from one tiny aquatic creature to another, uh, Tim, you've been looking into a story about bacteria that are themselves eyeballs. Have I got this right? You have. Yeah, that's 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 exactly what they are. Now, we we know already that bacteria can sense light and kind of move in response to it and so on. But we're, this seems to be suggesting something much more complex even than that. Yeah. So, so the bacteria in question, these are little single-celled organisms that live in ponds. They're actually called pond slides. Limes, uh, and they're photosynthetic, so they're like trees and plants. They use sunlight to produce energy. So for them, light is food. And one of the useful things, if you're an organism, is the ability to move to, towards your own food source. So we knew that these things could detect light somehow, but we didn't know how it works. And in one of these lovely sort of accidental discoveries, a team of researchers at Queen Mary University in the UK uh, stumbled upon the answer while looking at these, thing, these things down a microscope. And I should say, you know, these are not some exotic thing, you know, dredged up from a remote pond in the middle of the Amazon. They've been studied by scientists for an awful long time. And you, you may have some of these pond slime around your very own home. Quite possibly, <laughs> quite possibly you do. But what they, what they discovered, so they had them on a little microscope slide and they were shining a light uh, in from one side and watching the bacteria move sort of slowly towards the light. So they actually, they, they excrete these little arms of protoplasm and grab onto the floor and like pull themselves forward and that's how they move around. They're watching this happen. <laughs> this, this is now sounding pretty slimy. Go on. <laughs> well, Go on. So they were watching this happen and then they noticed that they could see on all of the cells the light from the source off to one side was being focused into a bright point on the back. And it was literally exactly the same mechanism by which the lens in your eye works or the lens in a camera or you know any kind of optical lens. The light comes in, the intracellular fluid focuses it onto a point at the back of the bacteria. And we don't know exactly the sort of biochemical mechanism, but somehow the bacteria is able to sense this light 
on the, the back part of its cell and it moves in the opposite direction, i.e. towards the light. Tim, how, how did they check this? Well, so that's quite neat, actually. There's a, there's a wonderful time-lapse video that you can, uh, you can see in which I think we might put up with our, our piece on, on the subject. But so, so they had this setup where the bacteria are all moving towards a light that's off to one side of the microscope slide. So what, one, one of the things they did was to shine a laser beam down through the middle of the slide, just a very, very small pot, uh, spot of very, very intense light. And just by fluke, some of the bacteria that were moving towards the white source of light, when they crossed the laser beam, that suddenly created a very bright patch of light on the other side of their cell wall to the, you know, to, to, to the previous one. So basically, you can watch them on the film. They move slowly towards this laser beam, and then some of them hit it, and they, almost, they, they bounce off. They reverse direction immediately because now the light's on the other side, and you think, oh, the food's over this way instead. And, <laughs> and you, you, it, it's quite amazing. You can just watch them basically bounce off this little, this little spot of laser light on a, on a microscope. So th- this is what they serendipitously saw and then had a great deal of fun with, one presumes. Exactly. They, it, they found it and, and thought, we have to test this. Well, the the existence of an eyeball, the whole complexity of the eyeball as we understand it, has been used by some as as some sort of argument against you know, progressive evolution, right? The idea that mm. you know, how could this possibly arise? Surely, all of all of the air is taken out of that argument if you find something as lowly as pond slime already has a focusing lens and and sensor and what have you. Yeah. So the usual way this argument's formed is you look at something like the eye and you say, oh, this is so spectacularly complicated. And if you change even one small thing about it, it stops working. And so how could something so spectacularly elaborate, like spring into being from nothing? And the usual analogy is it's like a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a 747. It's, it sounds sort of superficially plausible, but it relies on the idea that, you know, you can't simplify an eye and still have it be useful. And we've, we've already, there are lots of other examples of, of simpler eyes, so we know that's not true. This is possibly a good example of the simplest possible eye because... You don't even have, you know, these are single-celled organisms. You don't even have specialized cells here. You literally just have a ball of protoplasm that, because of the laws of physics, can, can focus light in exactly the same way that, you know, it's exactly the same mechanism as, as is used in, in all other eyes. Now, no one's pretending that this is going to give you a sort of razor-sharp view of the world. And the scientists have made some estimate about how, you know, what the sort of visual acuity, if you like, of these bacteria Bacteria's is. eye view. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it's almost nothing, you know, but it's enough to tell the difference. It's enough to tell that there is light over here and not light over there. And that's useful. And that's enough to give evolution a foothold. They did one of the tests they did was two sources of light. And the bacteria seemed to be able to basically triangulate between them and, and you know, and, and work out which way to move, even when there are, there are multiple sources of light. And you can sort of see from there how once you've got this ability... The ability to refine it becomes more and more useful. So if you like, yeah, this is this is the the base of a chain that ends perhaps with the eyes like we have or that octopuses have or birds of prey, the really complicated multicellular stuff. Right. Evolution. It's still true. Thanks for that, Tim. Before we sign off, I'd like to read out some of the Facebook comments we received about last week's show. One topic we discussed was organ cryopreservation, essentially the freezing of organs for transplant. There were some skeptical listeners out there uh, and some depressed ones, uh, among them apparently um, Pedro Maklov. I hope I'm saying that right. He said he found the idea of freezing organs depressing and thinks it's, quote, better to grow or even print organs using stem cells. Isn't that something that's already happening? Yeah, both both of those things are, are actually research strands. Uh, the freezing idea is kind of just further advanced and, you know, it's known to work in small mammals. It seems to be a, a very promising route and there just simply wasn't space to kind of go in and outline all of the ways that, that people are tackling, tackling this problem. Also last week, we spoke about doping in horse racing. The, the horses, not the jockeys, that is. Um, Harrison E. Milburn commented, why not let everyone juice their racehorses? It would be faster and more entertaining. 
I think I think it would. It would. And fu- funnily enough, we wrote uh, years and years ago, we had a cover story that, if I'm remembering rightly, was talking about doping in people, you know, in human athletes and various forms of doping that were coming up that were going to be much, much harder to detect. And so we did at least float the idea of basically turning athletics into Formula One and saying, you know, use whatever technology you like, dope yourself, give yourself, you know, robot limbs, just, just, just go for it and may the best and richest and most technologically advanced person win. I feel duty-bound to come in here and say it's not necessarily kind to drug up animals. I suppose they, the other difference, I suppose, is they can't consent. And human, human athletes can, at least in theory. Right. Well, thanks again for that, Tim. And thank you, Miranda. If you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us at EconSciTech on Twitter and on our Facebook page at The Economist. That's all for this week's episode, Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.